Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ingrid Cochran. I am CEO of Paces Connection, and I am joined today by my co-host, Matthew Portell, our Director of Communities. Today's conversation is um, very timely because Pace's Connection is going back to school. We're going to focus on America's school system, and um, we will be doing so all month long. Our first guest is going to kind of give us some background into his work. And the purpose of this is really to kind of outline um, experiences in the school system um, and give some historical context, especially for students of color, especially black students. Um, students dealing with um, poverty, but more importantly, kind of the landscape of our public school system. Um, Presently, we have a lot of things going on. We have teacher shortages. um, We have burnout of um, school administrators and school and teachers. And definitely uh, we have a mental health crisis for our students presently. And this is largely due to the collective trauma of COVID, but this has really just highlighted existing issues within the school system. So COVID has kind of accelerated or amplified what was already occurring in the school system. And so um, we really want to take this time to examine what this looks like in many facets um, with our guest today. So let me first introduce Matthew Portell, who is our Director of Communities with PACES. How are you doing, Matthew? I am doing very well, Ingrid, and thanks for having me back. I love coming uh, here weekly and having these conversations. And I think most listeners already know, and I know, I know you know, um, I have a deep passion for education, and not just for education, but unapologetically disrupting archaic uh, processes and policies and and structures and that is that are used in education and um it's not an easy fight but it's one that so many people are engaging in and i have to admit when i when i met this week's guest and we began to engage in conversation and uh he was one i i said we have to talk to him on this show so anthony conright he's a writer uh a writing fellow for the african-american policy forum he has published online and print in multiple outlets, including the Huffington Post, The Nation, The New Republic, and Mother Jones. Um, he has contributed content to the California Western School of Law. And in addition to being a journalist, he was an educator for 14 years. So he's a teacher, an educator, a writer. He says he's an artist instead of a writer because that's how deeply he believes in the work he publishes. So welcome, Anthony. We are so glad you are here. And, and tell us the Anthony story. How did you get into this work? How did you decide to become a, an artist writer uh, that focuses in these areas? Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to uh, be here and continue uh, the, the lovely conversation we, uh, we, we had and met. So for me, it all starts with um, actually just being in edu- working in education. So um I grew up in District District 4 in Southeast San Diego, predominantly black, went to neighborhood schools. And unfortunately, um, they really um, weren't up to par. Um, there was gang violence, um, riots. And um, when I was 
about 14, my, my mother told me about this new school that was starting up. It was a charter school um, called High Tech High. Fund, it was uh, funded by Bill Gates. And um, I ended up getting into High Tech High and I could immediately see how the trajectory of my life started to kind of to change from every other kid in my neighborhood that um, didn't go to a school like High Tech High. And um, when I was there, it wasn't a, it, it was all about um, kind of getting rid of the tradition that creates the no's and the no nots between kids. And so it was, um, the, the pedagogy was project-based learning. So it wasn't, you listen to a teacher for 45 minutes and then you get a worksheet and then you answer it and then you walk outside the door. It wasn't that. It was, the kids are collaborating um, to solve a problem and you're um, making your work public. And I got to meet a lot of people. I actually gave Bill Gates a tour of the school um, when I was 17 and no one I knew that I grew up with was having those same experiences. And so when I um, was 17 and graduated, I, I, um, I needed a job and um, someone I knew, one of, the, my, one of my former educators said, hey, why don't you come work, work for me? And so when I was 17, I started working in the after school program and I kind of just, my whole thing was, I felt like I had a responsibility to give back to a community that gave me so much. Um, it definitely isn't a, a perfect place. The, the story and how I left, it's, it's lots of ups and downs and certainly not perfect, but everything that I was doing was rooted in I need to give back because there is some kid in Southeast San Diego who might come to this place and I can look at them and say, hey, you know, we, we, we're cut from the same cloth. We might have, you know, similar experiences. You know, we're from the same neighborhood. In fact, I know your auntie. Um, so um, I wanted to, to be there for, for that kid. And so um, that's kind of, that's how I got started. And I also just had a passion um, for writing that I discovered because of teachers I had at High Tech High. And so my connection to the power of education is, is, very, is very deep. It's both academic, um, it's, it's, it's intellectual, and it's, it's social. And so um, I kind of started working there when I was 17, and um, I just did not leave for a really long time. Um, and then I ended up, um, I worked there, I moved you know, to San Francisco for a little bit, came back, um, top middle school, um, ended up moving to India to um, help start a middle school, did that for a year, came back, was it an administrator at High Tech High, and um, then left, moved to New York, um, was an administrator in New York, and then write, I, my, uh, I wanted to write a book, and my fiance said, hey, you know, why don't you quit your job, because she is the, the best fiance in the world, I apologize to all the other fiances out there, but she said, why don't you quit your job and write your book, and so um, I did, and um, when I finished the book, I had a panic and said, oh, I should probably get published in um, nonfiction, and here I am. And so that's kind of facilitated the, the work as a, as a journalist and how um, I come to kind of think about education.
Yeah. I, your background um, is really highlighting something that I've found in, in my, my studies and how I got into the field of stress and trauma. And, um, and, you know, some of the things that you highlight in your work are really about um, the systems that are impacting not just um, schools, but also just children and families. And that, of course, then leads to um, school performance and how people even, you know, view education in general. Um, I think that um, your, I think it's first thing I think is interesting. We never have people on that are not familiar with the ASA study. So I I definitely want to, to get your understanding of this, especially with the background that you already have. So, you know, the work that we do with PACES is centered around um, the initial adverse childhood experiences study. And, and this is reason why we at PACES think that schools are just extremely important institutions and are, are really driving either um, our children's ability to um, heal themselves and be resilient, or they are that factor that is traumatizing them or re-traumatizing them. And so the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study is a, um, a large-scale study that really looked at, um, you know, they surveyed adults and asked them about their childhood experiences in a questionnaire form. And they outlined these 10 experiences that were generally um, centered around abuse and neglect and also kind of household dysfunction like um, um, alcoholism, substance usage, divorce, um, uh, domestic violence, um, incarcerated um, adults in, in the home. And so the study was done, I believe in the 90s, and it really highlighted how this adversity that someone can experience in the first 18 years of life is not just tied to kind of social outcomes that we think, you know, um, incarceration being one of them or um, inability to have economic stability, uh, things of that nature, but and, and maybe even poor mental health, but also tied to kind of physical health outcomes like um, diabetes, high blood pressure, um, cancer. And so the study was, um, it was kind of shocking. And I always like to hear people's um, reactions to kind of those kind of findings. What do you think about, you know, our understanding around stress and trauma in children's lives and how it connects to poor outcomes across the board? And how does that kind of feed into your, your work? that you are doing currently? My, my first reaction is just um, one of sadness because it sounds like we've become accustomed to um, allowing violence to happen to children. Like that's, I mean, you know, the, the, the results themselves aren't, aren't um, super surprising, but I don't, but sometimes I think we in general forget how violent our culture is. And I don't mean just physical violence and guns. I mean, even the way we talk to each other, the way that, you know, the, the sort of myths we have about um, adult child, parent, child um, relationships. So like a, some of them, some of those myths like require violence for the, the, the myth to be, um, sort of manifested <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but I mean, that's also, it's, it's the, the history of, um, the, the country. Yeah. yeah. And so my work in this field, it really started around incarceration. Um, mm -hmm. I was working with uh, incarcerated youth 
even before I got into the field of psychology. And then my studies have been focused on intergenerational incarceration and ultimately African-American parenting practices. And this is how I really started to focus on historical trauma and how trauma is passed along through generations and how history really plays a role, like our history as a, as a country. Um, and just the history of, you know, our humanity plays a role in how um, we view the world and how the world views us and definitely how much trauma we may or may not experience. I know that um, one thing that really came up for me in your work is um kind of the school to prison pipeline and mm-hmm. especially around um, disciplinary action in schools. And I know that you had a recent article uh, that highlighted that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, the article looks at um, the school to prison pipeline and puts it in um, a larger historical context about what uh, America is okay doing to um, black children, right? And so, um, sort of the, the biggest the, the biggest picture for me, and it, this this might sound sort of um, I don't know if it's like over overly intellectual, but um, if you walk with me, we'll kind of get through the get through it together. Um, is that the the nature of the relationship of black people to this country is a master slave relationship and it was the project of america to hold that relationship intact right and this is where people go well hey anthony but you know we have the 13th amendment and you know this wonderful um, benevolent human named Abraham Lincoln, like freed the slaves. And then like, there were some like bad things that happened afterwards and we get that. But then, you know, Jesus sent the, sent us this beautiful black man named Martin Luther King Jr. And he said, um, you know, let my people go as if he were, you know, hearing Moses and walked us through the civil rights era. And then we had Barack Obama. So it must be all good. Um, that's sort of the myth. And we forget the um, nuances of how the country um, uh, maintains a master slave relationship with with black people. And I mean, if you just even start with the 13th Amendment, and I don't think people, I think we know it as a society that it's, you know, slavery, except for a punishment um, uh, for a crime, if you're duly convicted. But the problem is, this that means the country the 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 country believes that slavery the horrors of slavery are okay if a person is guilty of a crime um given that they have uh they're given they're they're duly convicted now duly for people who can't see i'm doing it in air quotes um and so what happened after the emanci- what happened after uh, the 13th Amendment? Well, literally, one of the things that um, happened in Mississippi was this act um, that essentially said <laughs> every the, the, the state is going to take a tally of every black kid under um, I think it's, uh, it was 18. And they said, if that kid doesn't have suitable parents, 
then the state can take that kid and apprentice that kid to some capable parent. Now, who do you think they thought the capable parents were? It was white people. And in the law, I kid you not, in the law, it actually says the former master of the kid gets the preference. And all of that is to maintain the, a master-slave relationship. And so when people forget that, you know, after emancipation, like the, the, the project of the country was to keep a, a particular dynamic, um, we, we forget that the, the state has functioned, America has functioned um, with the, under the notion that it's okay to enact violence on, on children. Um, and so that piece kind of looks at that and then gets, um, specific to discipline practices in schools and how zero tolerance policies, um, will impact black students, um, disproportionately in how if you're suspended and then let's say, um, you're coming from a home where your parent is incarcerated or if they're, um, if you're in a situation where you're pressured into, you know, hanging out with the people, you know, who um, bad influences outside, well, now because you've been suspended, you're not in school, but you're on the street. And as you know, our parents should say, if you're out there running the streets, then something bad can happen to you. And so if that kid gets caught out of school, a cop could see the kid and say, hey, what are you doing? That could create a bad interaction. If the, the kid is, you know, does, makes a, is a kid and just makes a um, poor choice, then that, kid, that could lead to um, uh, incarceration. And so there are all these little, there are all these things. I mean, Khalif Browder was six, 16 years old when he was, um, accused of stealing a backpack. And it's just like, and it's, it, and so it looks at all the ways that um, even teachers who are in the, the field to disrupt it are moved to move kids into the, the school to prison pipeline. Yeah, this is something that I know firsthand working with incarcerated youth um, in Tennessee, about 80% of them were African-American. And obviously, Tennessee is not a majority African-American um, state. And this was state level work. And so it, it really moved me to even begin this journey of, of learning about um, how intergenerational incarceration happens. And then, of course, in my studies, I quickly got to the place of historical trauma, which is that... Um, we have a society that has been warped by racism, which then uh, pushes parents to parent in a way that ensures that their children will survive a racist society and all the things that come along with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also have uh, all of our systems, not just education, but we're talking about education today. Uh, and uh, and criminal justice, but uh, that we have systems that are built to marginalize certain groups. And this is largely driven by policy and that it is extremely intentional in its origins. And, and that kind of brings me to kind of another hotbed issue in our, in our school system, which is critical race theory. And I remember when this was first becoming an issue um, and how I thought it was humorous. And and now I do not. Now I do not think it's humorous. But at the be at the beginning of it, I thought, wow, these 
these parents, you know, really having a, a tantrum on the floor of the school board meeting um, around just the accurate portrayal of history mm-hmm. um, is telling in our in our country. The first that you would you would be against an accurate um, portrayal of history in our country is, is problematic. But then also that you um, as a, as a parent are doing so to protect really what we're talking about is the racial identity of white children, right? We, we parents were very clearly saying, I don't want my child to feel bad about this history or feel bad about being white. And, um, but our society is totally fine with children of color, you know, feeling bad about being black or brown. And so um, there's obviously a lack of equity in that. Uh, What do you feel about um, how America is really um, pushing back on the accurate telling of our history or the, this narrative that yes, like you kind of said before, yeah, things were bad. Now we've overcome. Um, what are we missing out by not having this accurate telling and how is that impacting our schools? So um, th- this is such a, a multi-layered issue. And one thing for me is I think, I think there are a couple of things that um, we have to kind of, um, we have to realize. Number one, these people actually don't care about education. They don't even they don't care actually care about the truth of history, because even if you look at Tennessee, the, some of the, the state standards actually require teachers to talk about slavery, and it and it's not even in a way that's like apologetic. There are some um, Tennessee state standards that are very specific in like where you're. Uh, I I even think they're supposed to learn about like Nat Turner, right? And like that's not like, you know if you want to scare some white people talk about Nat Turner. Um, and so, um, so we have to think, of, well, what, what other project is, is happening? What is the backlash and spirit of? And I think what ended up happening was um, the murder of uh, George Floyd really um, did something to the conversation about race. Now, supposedly there was this great reckoning and um, there there really wasn't a reckoning there. What ended up happening was because conservatives had no way to say, well, maybe if George Floyd just complied with orders, well, maybe if he didn't resist, well, maybe if he didn't do all these things, because we watched it on tape. So we watched this man get asphyxiated to death, crying out for his mother. And Republicans had no way to denigrate the, the the murder. It was it was it was impossible. And so what ends up happening is they they tie all of these of uh, they find ways to get to that project by criticizing quote unquote wokeness and finding in CRT. Because what happened after um, that death, you get the 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 largest protest worldwide protests about racial and violence that we've ever seen. And you, the conversation started to shift. And so all of a sudden you have people really talking about anti-racist work because um, the how to be anti-racist, the book sells shot through the roof. White people tend to love to do book clubs to like learn about racial injustice. And like, I understand, but we, again, we just have to be realistic with the, what what's happening. And I appreciate that work, but so that those books um, go and sell. You have um, White Fragility, um, 
shoots through the roof. And so people start to think structurally about systems. And so what happened is um, in Seattle, as this is all going on, this, this man, um, Christopher Rufo is watching presentational homelessness. Now he's one of those people that says, okay, well, we, I don't want to actually, um, in poverty. I just want homeless people to be arrested, but he doesn't, but what was happening was people were talking about homelessness in terms of white supremacy due to the George Floyd murder. And so what he does is go, well, he gets these presentation slides that were um, given out by the city and he sees that Robin DiAngelo and uh, Kendi cited literally like once or twice per book, critical race theory. So he attacks it because there's nothing else that they could use to attack that, that movement in response to um, George Floyd's death. So that's, that's one of it. It's a bad faith. They don't care about education. And the other thing is it's um, a throwback to the South banning abolitionist literature. So um, white people banning books um, have been around, it's been around forever, right? And so you, you, know, you have David Walker's The Appeal, um, that was banned. You had people burning abolitionist literature during the Confederacy of the South literally tried to create their own textbooks that, um, you know, praised, um, you know, the, the Confederacy and the sort of Southern way of life. Um, and one of the ways to do that was you had, they outlawed um, abolitionist literature. And so um, there's a rich history to that, that, you know, we probably can get into another time, but I think those are kind of the two things that are working. And I think, you know, liberals, there are people on the left have to be very careful um, in the assumption that learning history is like the cure. Cause it's, it's not, that's not going to be a remedy. Um, there are lots of people who knew history and did um, just horrible things to other human beings. And so we kind of have to think about the problem differently. Yeah, thank you for that perspective. I think um, we really need to do a deep dive into how we can address these issues within the school settings. And there is a lot there. We have issues around textbooks, um, definitely issues around teacher bias. Mm -hmm. um, and all of this is really under this larger umbrella of how we believe, um, you know, how basically black citizens fit into our, our culture through this uh, process of education. Um, what should they be educated on? And this is something that has started since, well, even during slavery when they had to make decisions about whether or not black people could read or not. Um, and so we're gonna jump back into this conversation after the break where we'll kind of pick up and talk more about, you know, what what are the roots in this issue in the school system around disciplinary action, teacher bias, and a host of other things. So we'll be right back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, 
we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. And we are back with our guest, Anthony Conright, who is a writer and journalist. Um, we were, before the break, having a conversation about kind of the history of schools in America, especially when it comes to African-American students. And Matthew, I know you had um, some things that you wanted to ask Anthony, so I'm going to give it oh over to you. Oh, my goodness. Ingrid, I have so much to ask and say. I have so many thoughts brewing in my head, but I'll, I'll save all of those because I want to hear more of Anthony's thoughts. But and Ingrid and I, you, you and I have had this conversation about historical context of desegregation of schools. And I think we even had it with a couple other people uh, on a different forum. And and I remember you saying, hey, I don't I don't necessarily think desegregation <laughs> was a great thing. Right. Like yeah. there were there were children of color, black children who were being taught by black community black members that felt safe. I, I mean, I remember those conversations and and it made me really think deeply. And I went in and I started looking at some of the histor- historical context just in the South, 38,000 black teachers south in the southern border. So I'm in Tennessee, which is why I looked in that um, lost their jobs during desegregation to make room for white teachers. And I see article after article and I've been in it as an edu- as an as an administrator hiring. I've heard conversations nonstop. We have to get more black teachers into schools because it benefits all kids. We know all of this. And, and, and I know when I go back, I go, well, no wonder there are no black teachers in schools or the percentages of, I think it's 11% um, of the teaching population is black and only 2% are black male. And so there's so much that goes into it. And Anthony, you, you wrote a really interesting article and I would love to get into hear your thoughts about you know, the role that black educators play and, and how that perception is is looked at, especially when we're talking about 
in administrative roles because I've heard it a thousand times. You've got to get a black administrator to work with you or you have to get a black dean of instruction. Talk about your thoughts around that, because I know that article is one that resonated deeply with me. So um, so that article um, was very personal for me because I was a dean. Um, and again, I know it's a it's a it's kind of a heavy exercise to do, but we have to think if the project of America is to maintain a master slave relationship between for for black folks. Well, how might the myths we hold about black educators reinforce that dynamic? Well, when you um, look at the writing of one plantation owner who wrote a manual on how to write how to run a plantation, he said, well, you need to get the slave driver to be black because that way the slave driver can punish all of the, the slaves and then the slaves don't hate the enslaver, they hate the slave driver who is there to essentially be a surrogate for the, the, the enslaver. And so when I became a dean, <laughs> I realized that's what was happening. And again, it isn't as if the people who hired me were like, oh, we want to reinforce, you know, you're going to be our slave driver. It's never that explicit. And a lot of times it's, it's done in, with, with good intention. But that's also the scary thing about this country and our system is that you can be a very well-intended person. You could look at those statistics and say, wow, we really need to get some black educators in here because statistics show that students do better with um, when they have black educators and not just black students, all students. So again, we have to think logically. We know the best thing for kids is to have black educators in schools, yet we can't seem to do it. Well, why is that? And then again, we, we have to think logically. The, the teachers, the, the black educators you're hiring to fix the system where you have white teachers who are disproportionately punishing students. And I mean, and, and that, by the way, is not only specific to white teachers. There are black teachers who do it too. But the problem is the, the, the black person you're hiring to fix it has to work with those people. And so what do you think is going to happen? Well, they're going to get pushed out because when they try to do something different, those white educators say, well, you're not punishing the kids hard enough or there are no consequences and we need to punitively punish the kids because that that's that makes me feel good. And that's the only that's really the only reason why we revert to punitive punishment, because um, we have been trained in this country to want to desire blood and revenge. And we even adults sometimes we'll do that to kids. Well, this kid did this, they need this. And there's really no, and sometimes there's no rationale to the punishment. Like the adult just wants to see blood. And we're accustomed to committing acts of violence amongst children, psychological, physical, uh, physical, uh, verbal. And so what ends up happening is the black educator becomes the, the conduit to, to do those things. And so I understand that 
um, you know, there is a need for black teachers and I understand why you might want to hire a black disciplinarian. And at the same time, you have, we have to ask ourselves, what is um, doing that in the spirit of? That makes me think of, of, I don't know if you've ever met or talked to Dr. Tracy Benson, who wrote Unconscious Bias in Schools. It goes to that very first phrase that you said about intent, Mm -hmm. is that people aren't operating in the intent to do that, but that's the outcome, right? And and he, he said clearly in his book, we've got to live in that uncomfortableness of understanding that I'm not judging you as an individual who... I'm looking at this as the systematic piece and we have to change it because that unconsciously is impacting us. And I think it goes to what Ingrid even says. We are the system. If you are an educator in public education, even private education, you are the system. So when we say we're fighting against the system, we're actually fighting against ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And until we're ready to grapple with that and to say we have to do it differently because what is being done is what's always been done, then that is a then the change is never really going to happen on the scale in which it is is ultimately. So let's get into because what you just said um, resonated with me so much. And I'm just going to tell you, uh, Anthony, I told you before, I've heard the conversation of you need a black administrator to ensure they can discipline the black children. I've heard it a thousand times. I've heard it within a district that I worked. I've worked, heard it around the country. I've heard conversations. I've been part of conversations. And I'm going to be honest, at the time, I didn't make the connection that you did. Again, that is my own reflection. I have to go in and go, oh, I'm not going to say the word that came into my head when you first said it, but dang, like I, I'm perpetuate, I was perpetuating those same ideas. And until we can be honest with ourselves, right? then we can't do that work. So I think that it speaks to how we have to have that self-reflection. But let's get into that disproportionality because I think it's really important that we we also look at the disproportionality of kids and and the prison the school to prison pipeline and and it's it's just a continuation. This isn't something new, right? And I know Ingrid, you've been involved in some local context of some really well-intended people who did some well-intended programs and they got good results on the surface, which was to decrease suspensions. But then when they looked at the data directly, the disproportionality was still there, even though the discipline was decreased or the, the exclusionary yeah. practice was decreased. The disproportionality was actually worse. And so oh. they had made a lot of gains and their numbers in general looked better. But when you went and looked at racial demographics, you found that they were really just doing a really good job of implementing the intervention with their white boys. And so they saw a, a great deal of impact, um, but they actually had more disparity, more, more of a gap in that work, but better numbers overall. And I think that's something that's good. You know, that's, that's a, I think that reflects kind of what's going on in our education system in general. Um, you know, even back in, I think the seventies when they were uh, pushing for Sesame street as a way to address the uh, achievement gap. And they found that, you know, everybody kind of um, increased or improved in their educational outcomes, all children, but still, we have a, that that gap there, and it's because people are not interested in equity in education. They're they're pushing for equality or blanket interventions, and not exactly 
getting to the impact that they want. And they also don't want to talk about the elephant in the room, which is that uh, we're a racist country and our education system is a racist system and has always been that way. Um, I know that we've talked a lot about kind of what the issues are. So I'm wondering, um, Anthony, what do you feel about kind of the future of this, of our public school system, especially since COVID has, you know, kind of shown the light on a lot of things in our school system. And and we are really thinking through how we can address these issues. And there's so much going on that's been kind of exasperated by COVID. What's, what's next? What are the solutions? Um, well, it, I think, so I'll, I'll kind of go to what I think is next, which will inform thinking about the solution. I don't think anything is going to change. And the reason why I don't think it's going to change is because we're, we are in a dynamic where we can, you know, we can acknowledge that the educational system is racist, right? But you have um, liberals who that value enlightenment. And so we'll say, we will say to ourselves, this education system is, is racist. I want a degree from Harvard or I value a degree from Harvard. People um, who graduate from Yale or go to Ivy League schools are extremely smart. And I want to be identified as one of those people because I value that kind of social currency. So I'm going to go to one of those schools. That's why things aren't going to change because you're saying a system is racist, but yet you value the currency of the racist system. So um, like what, how do you fight against that? Like you, you can't. Um, and so that's why I don't think things are going to change. But my solution, um, and this literally just comes from COVID, everybody should go on strike. That's like, I don't know what else to do, but to, but to finally say like, look, we're going to just have to shut it down because um, there's no other way out of this like if nobody goes to work if if no if, if just people just don't work um and nobody wants to work already so just 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 take like two weeks off and we'd be okay so if teachers said look i've had enough of this i'm not working in this system and didn't work the parents don't you know we have to be honest and parents love their kids and they do not love their kids and so like Parents will say, no, you guys need to change this because I need to get away from my kids. And so like that, it, it, it seems scary, but we just kind of did it. So um, that's what I think the solution is. We have to say, you know what? Um, teachers should say there's no reason for a kid to um, have to take an SAT and then you have to take another test to get into college. And then you have to take all the classes you just took and then you have to pay for it again. Like that's, it's, it's crazy. So teachers should say um, no ACT, no SAT. There should not be Ivy league schools. If you, if you're a liberal and you think billionaires shouldn't exist, but you're okay with Ivy league schools, you're a wall, you're a contradiction. You're wrong. And you're full of a word I'm not going to say because you can't, you can't have those two things. And so that's what I think we, we need to do. And then we need to say that we don't need, um, why do we, you know, let's not separate subjects. 
Like, why do we why do we teach math separately from English when you need English to understand word problems and you need to and you need to know how to talk about the the um, ethical implications of statistics, right? You that why is that separate? And so, like, I think if we want to um, if we want a solution, we all have to be able to just sacrifice a little bit for each other, and we have to say, I'm not going to work. And then the people who, um, you know, are in a tight situation, we, we have to figure out how to create communities for them. So if all the teachers stop going to work, it, we need the parents to support the teachers, and then we'll need the parents to support each other. Because the, the you know, the, the, the family who doesn't have adequate childcare or is in poverty, that family might need a little something. And so we have to pull our resources in that school and say, hey, this family, you know, they're 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 for the cause. They're going on the strike, but they need some food. So then, you know, we all pull our sources together and we say, okay, we're going to take care of that family as we're going on a strike, and we do it for as long as it takes. Well, I can definitely get behind that. <laughs> I think that so. What you're saying, Anthony, is that we're doing it all wrong, and <laughs> we right. should just tear the right. system down and build a new one. Um, yeah, and, and this is something that comes up over and over again as we kind of grapple with all of the decisions that we've made as a country that have gotten us to this point. Um, they are uh, in opposition to what we know is the best way to operate. Over and over again, we make these decisions um, because we value one group over another. Over and over again, we continue to make the decisions that prop up one group over another and don't see how we are all interconnected and thus, as we do uh, these types of things and as we other, you know, engage in otherness and isolate and um, be exclusive, um, then we create a society that we don't want, um, that will eventually get to the point where it um, is impacting all of us, not just those that are marginalized. And so I think our school system is a perfect example of that. I think COVID has really shown all of all the cracks that exist in our school system. And I also feel kind of a personal indictment because I am one of those uh, people who I'm, I think hypocrite is a harsh word, but I will go with, you know, um, having a clear understanding, but still engaging in the system in a way for self-preservation. Um, we all do it. Yeah, we all, we all do it now. Because when you were talking, I thought about, you know, here in um, where I live in Nashville, Tennessee, we're having a real issue around education uh, and it's become very political. Um, and I am in a position where I would say I'm, I cannot imagine sending my child to public school. I'm going to have to go a private school route. And as we have more people making those types of decisions because they have the means to do so, and um, we have a clear abandonment of our public school system. Um, and so uh, I can I can feel that ouch. And <laughs> Matthew, I see that you have um, some other things you want to say to our oh, guests. I have so many thoughts. Um, and, and, and Anthony, I think the interesting thing, and especially with you, with you and your educational experience, I always find it inter interesting when innovation is done, it's done outside of the public school system. And I've never understood that as an educator, just let me do some of these things that we need to do. But again, then therefore we are trying to change the system within the system and therefore it's hard to change. But I mean, I, I've, I have been a perpetuant 
of the system because I worked as an educator for 15 years, right? And I knew, and, and I knew there were times, even when standardized testing started, I'd be like, why are we doing this? Like, as a parent, as an educator, why are we doing this? And I've openly even said as a principal, this serves zero purpose, right? It stresses kids out. It uh, does not show their learning. It, it's just, it is a giant money maker, mm-hmm. right? But yet I showed up on those days and I told the kids the stupid thing of this is really important to show what you know. And then I went in my office and I went, I, I just completely sold out. Like it is that grappling of when to fight the fight and when not. And I will tell you when, when you do get this uh, na- national movement of saying, I'm out, dude, I'll be right next to you. So let, let me know. And if you need help, I'll try to get it started. But it really is that it's enough is enough. And I believe especially in education, we're approaching something. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the drastic drasticness looks like. The great exodus is happening. It's not a shock, just like the historical context of everything that's happened in our country is not shocking to this point. I'm not shocked that teachers are leaving the profession and teachers are not coming in the profession. It is not a shock to me. Right. But we are getting to that precipice of something is going to give something has to change. And let's just hope it is one day that all the educators and all the parents join together and say, it's enough. That's a wrap. Right. And that would be one sector. We have many other sectors. But if we could just get the one, because that's what we're talking about. Right. I mean, I just I mean, so. When you if you think about the reaction to the um, Black Lives Matter protest in the summer when, you know, people burn down a Chase Bank or whatever. Um, obviously, no one wants to see violence, right? But I, I like, I wish people would stop and kind of think about, we watch, we've watched multiple t- times now where someone has taken a gun and murdered children. Children babies babies and we still have not shut it down and and when i think about that i go wow there's really nothing we will not allow to happen to children like there's 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 literally nothing and when i realize that i'm like anthony well of course not people used to enslave them so like i don't i i just don't know what it would take for this country um, to go, we're not going to take this anymore because we're actively doing violence to, to children and, and to adults. But I mean, you would think that after kids are murdered in Texas, after Sandy Hook, after all that, we, w- we, we would have said, no, we're not, we're not having it anymore. But but because capitalism and the, the, the uh, mechanism of the country, they move us to say, I can't not have, I can't lose my job because we don't have any social safety network, uh, um, uh, social safety net. And so it's kind of like, I just, in my mind, I just, I'm, I'm just kind of like, what, what, what more 
do we need, you know, until we just say, we know the SAT isn't a predictor. We know, like, why do universities have a monopoly on teaching? Why does the college board exist? You know, like, why do we have all these things? And um, we know it's negatively impacting all of us, but yet we still haven't um, said we're going to shut it down. I'm hoping, I hope if there's someone listening and, and you have a, a large network of, of folks and you want to, and you want to plan the, you know, the, the, the shutdown, um, let's do it. Um, but I, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I won't say I'm hopeful, but my fingers are crossed. Well, I think this is a good place to kind of close out. I, I think we've had an interesting conversation that really ties to, I mean, our schools are a microcosm. So this ties to a lot. Um, and so, you know, kind of, you know, we're, we're doing it all wrong. And uh, uh, our ability, our reasons behind doing it this way are largely dependent on two things, and that's race and money. And as we continue down this path and we make decisions based on those two things, um, we continue to, you know, America's cutting off its nose despite its face. And so we have to reevaluate and ensure that our systems are at least trauma aware and then trauma informed. And then we need to be pushing towards liberation. How do we liberate ourselves of these oppressive systems? How do we set all of us free? Not just not just white people, yeah. all of us free. And then how we can move forward in a way that allows for us to be healing centered. Um, and that means we're going to have to get rid of this push for convenience and this push for uh, an understanding that one group is somehow different and special and better than another. Uh, and we have to let go of all of our, um, you know, the the racism and bias um, that's embedded within our, our understanding of the world because we've grown up within a racist system. And so I think as we move through that process, we will find that most of our institutions need a need a rework. And it's going to be interesting to see if that happens. But thank you for joining us here today. And thank you so much, um, Anthony, for being our guest. And we will see you next week. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.